Revelation chapter 3, as we get to the last letter to the last church, it's the most encouraging, and by that I mean the least encouraging. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father in heaven, we do ask that your spirit would indeed work that we might hear. Give us ears. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. So I have a friend, years ago, uh, built a house. And by I say built a house, I, I don't mean like we did. You, know, you get an architect that's already designed something and you just pick out the 47 different options and then you know, they cookie cutter assemble it together. I mean like he built a house like with a hammer and nails and wood and a screwdriver. He built his house. And I remember the first time that I got to go visit the house. It was a marvelous house. It's uh, glorious, actually. If you, I mean, you pull up to the front property and they had the live oaks, you know, with the, the huge live oak trees, massive, you know, branches that go sprawling out sideways. And this gorgeous white, you know, three-story kind of plantation style traditional home that he himself had built from the ground up is absolutely marvelous. And you walked around back and the, the, the yard went down to the dock where he had the boat and the river was there. And if you actually looked up, you could see the nests of the bald eagles on the other side of the river, which is pretty amazing. I didn't know that we actually had bald eagles in South Carolina, but we do. Um, it's absolutely marvelous. I mean, it's a beautiful home, like one of those places that you see it and you're like, this is like one of those better homes and gardens, like wedding places, isn't it? This is where like, you know, people stop off the street and be like, hey, can we get married in your backyard kind of place? <laughs> Until the first time you walk inside, actually, was the issue, because you open the door, and you go, man, who's been cooking eggs? And I don't think you want to eat those eggs. They smell off. They smell like they've turned. In fact, actually, so you kind of, well, don't really say anything. It's this new house he just spent, you know, forever building. It's marvelous. We'll just kind of act like we don't acknowledge the really awkward, unpleasant elephant in the room. It smells like there's an elephant in the room. We've got to, you know, move past that. 
You know, you spend the night, whatever. You take, take a shower the next day, and it feels like you're showering on the inside of an egg. It's just yolk and goo. It smells so strong. And finally, ask the question. I'm like, okay, what in the world with the eggs, man? He's like, well, here, actually, what we do is everybody on this island, they, you have to use wells, and the water table's about right there, so you just stick a pipe in the ground just about. The problem is, this part of the state, we have sulfur like crazy. And so everything is eggy. You drink it, it's eggy. You shower, it's eggy. You cook, it's eggy. Everything is eggy. And so this kind of weird kind of juxtaposition of the better homes and garden kind of mansion with the bald eagles mixed with eggs everywhere. And it's like this really kind of odd kind of mental process of going like, what am I doing with this like gorgeous home that reeks? I don't know how to process what's going on. Actually, this is actually what's going on in Laodicea. Laodicea, make the connection, was a similar sort of town, actually. Unbearably wealthy, beautiful beyond all belief, merchants coming out their ears, rich town, great town, glorious town. In fact, actually, they, they think that about the time this was written, uh, there was a Jewish community in the neighborhood of like 25,000 Jews in the area. 25,000 Jews. I mean, it's a big town. And a lot of Jews is a great place to be. There was, however, one problem with Laodicea. Laodicea, much like the city of Atlanta and the genius city planners that started that one, had no water source. Atlanta has no natural water source. That's why everybody is... Dying of dehydration there, not really. So what they did, the Romans did 145 years before this was written or so, something like that, is they built a gigantic uh, viaduct to take water six miles from Hierapolis to Laodicea. Uh, They had found a a natural spring where the water pumped up on its own. They built the aqueduct, so all it had to do was just get into the waterway, and it would flow on its own the six miles all the way to Laodicea and dump into the middle of the city town. So you had city water, which is amazing. And you had free city water-ish, kind of. You didn't have a water bill like we do. The one problem was that the, the spring that they tapped was a natural hot spring and had all kinds of minerals in it the same way that a normal hot spring would. So when it bubbled up in Hierapolis, it was hot and useful and pleasant when it was cold, but by the time it had flowed six miles through the aqueduct and made it to Sinisitter in Laodicea, it was lukewarm and nasty. It had actually a minerally flavor. I mean, it's, this is like the worst of the like nasty mineral waters that's just slightly warm. I mean, can you imagine that? You're a farmer in this time. You've been out, you know, busting your neck in the field, just killing yourself, you know, doing all the hard labor, and you're going like, man, I can't wait for a glass of slightly warm mineral water that's going to upset my stomach. I can't wait to have the sodium carbonate turn my stomach inside out so I'm... See, with this letter to Laodicea, Jesus begins, and it's interesting as he begins with them, this is one of the, it's the harshest letter. There's no kind of praise for them. He doesn't begin by saying, look, you people are doing a great job at X, Y, and Z. I got other issues. Instead, he kind of kicks open the door and unloads on them. 
He starts and say, look, I, I know exactly what's going on. Remember, Jesus has already described himself as the one who currently lives in the church today. This is not out of ignorance that he speaks. It's out of the, his knowledge today and immediately begins with an illustration they would understand. It would be like if Jesus came to us today and began with an illustration of traffic at the Gold Hill Interchange at 5.30 in the afternoon. Everybody would be like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I hate four belt traffic. Ugh, right. He begins with them and says this illustration, look, I wish that you were either hot or cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but instead you as a church, as a people group, are much like the water that you drink. Slightly warm, ridiculously unpleasant, and stomach upsetting to the ends of the earth. Interesting, that doesn't fully explain exactly what that is, and uh, there's a reason for that. I suspect what he's hinting at is he's talking about their spiritual condition, and he's wishing that he was, they were either hot enough that it was pleasant or cold enough that it was refreshing, and instead all they are as a church are just nauseating. And I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, no church wants Jesus to show up, and the first thing he does is describe them as nauseating. Just going to go out on a limb. Right? If he comes and showed up today and we're talking, I would want at least a little bit of encouragement before he dropped that bomb on me. Yeah, Christchurch, that's a nauseating place. I don't like to be there. Oh, please, Jesus, don't do that. Instead, he says for the church of Laodicea, they are that lukewarm, that unpleasantness to the point where even Jesus says, look, I'm going to have to spew you out of my mouth. I'm going to have to spit you out. I can't keep you around in the condition that you're in. Your spiritual condition is so unhealthy. Your spiritual condition is so blah that I have to get rid of you. I can't, do, I can't keep you the way you are. Oh, man, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> Not the kind of letter I want to be reading. I'm Michael, why don't you pick a better passage that's encouraging? That's why we read through the Bible. The interesting thing is he actually then gives explanation as to, to how they got to this point. How did the church in Laodicea, which started well, which was planted by a church planter where they believed the gospel and were at some point on fire for Jesus, how did a church that started so well end up in a situation where Jesus himself shows up and says, I find you nauseating? Now, verse 17 explains... For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Now, this is, again, a catchphrase from uh, uh, Laodicea. This would have been like, you know, don't tread on me out west. Or this would have been a phrase that they understand and knew well because of the nature and temperament of the town of Laodicea. Uh, as with many of these churches, the towns that they're in were built inconveniently on fault lines. We know that now. Uh, the result of it is many of them had uh, volcanoes very close to them or on the exact mountain, the same as them. Uh, this one, specific Laodicea, is on a massive fault line and has regular earthquakes. Uh, in 17 AD, they had a massive earthquake that leveled the town, so much so that Rome came in and paid for it to be rebuilt. Like, that's a nice thing for Rome to do. Not normally known for their niceties, but they rebuilt the entire town of Laodicea. Fair enough. Good on Rome. At 17 AD... In 60 AD, so two generations later-ish, maybe three, there's another massive earthquake that levels the town. 
So Rome does the same thing again and sends, gets ready to send a whole bunch of money to the town of Laodicea so that Rome themselves would pay for it. And it's interesting because the people of Laodicea got offended at Rome. How dare you try to pay for our town? We will fix it, thank you. We have enough money and we don't need any of your business. Thank you very much. I mean, can you imagine New Orleans doing this after Katrina? <laughs> right? FEMA comes in and New Orleans is like, nope, no thank you. We are wealthy enough. We do not need you. You can get up and out of our business. Go away, federal government. Thank you very much. That's the temperament that Laodicea has, though. It's a town that is filled with money, that's filled with its kind of self-understanding that we can make it work. We can do it ourselves. We've got this. Which, I mean, if we're going to be honest, boy, doesn't that sound a little bit like South Carolina? I mean, I mean, there's, there's part of us that, for those of us who grew up in the Carolinas, are kind of like, right on? <laughs> you know? Some that are like when, you know, South Carolina refused to take federal money a couple of, you know, presidential terms ago. We're like, ah, right, you, you told the government where they can take their money and I don't want it, you know? I like it when the ones that are encouraging hit close to home, it's not quite as really comforting when the bad ones hit close to home where I'm like, man, I would value that in most situations. You see, that's actually the problem here with this church in Laodicea is they represent a cultural kind of category that so many of us actually value. They are self-sufficient. And again, many of us today are like, right on, like we want people to take more responsibility. Right on, we want people to work harder to kind of better themselves, right on. Problem is, is Laodicea has taken that from the political sphere or the economic sphere, any of those things, and moved it into the moral religious sphere. To say, look, I I don't need anything spiritually. I've got it all figured out. Preacher, I don't need you. You can take your, you know, hurting my feelings stuff and you can go home with that. I don't need you because I'm good. I got it solved. I don't need your advice. I don't need God's truth. I don't need to hear them. I'm good. I've got it. I've got it sorted out. Thank you. And it's amazing to me how much this has become the American answer, isn't it? It's one of the things we have conversations about now as preachers where it used to be the the hard part of sharing the gospel was to convince people that Jesus was the thing they needed. Now the hard part of sharing the gospel is to convince people they need anything at all. I mean, what do you need anything? You have enough money, you can go buy whatever you want to buy. Fix whatever you want to fix. Do whatever you want to do. That's why really rich towns are unbearably hard to pastor in. You don't like the way you look? Fine, pay for it to get fixed. You don't like the way you act? Fine, pay for it to get fixed. You don't like the way the kids act? Fine, pay for them to go somewhere else. You don't need anything at all. I think that's probably the part that that disturbs me the most is that here you have a church that when you have to ask the question, how did they go wrong? The answer that comes up is they stopped realizing they needed things and the result of it was that they became spiritually lukewarm. And the problem with that is I look around at the America church and I go, my goodness, boy, if Jesus hasn't just absolutely tagged us with this one. You want proof? I'll give you proof. 
how is the American prayer meeting doing? You realize prayer meeting is simply an exercise in acknowledging that we need things. It's where God's people get together and acknowledge, Lord, we're a mess. <laughs> oh, that you didn't know that. But we're going to acknowledge before you that we need things. We need things emotionally because we're emotionally hurting. We need things physically because we're physically hurting. We need things personally because we're lonely, because we're insecure, because we're fearful. And we acknowledge that God is the only one who can fix any of those things. But because we don't need anything, we don't pray. I mean, I don't pray. Why do I, why, why do I pray? I don't need anything. I've got, it, I've got it all sorted out. I'm fine. You're fine. We all got it. We're good. The problem is, as you know, that lie only holds for so long. That lie only sticks around for a little while. And eventually the truth begins to gnaw at our brain and we wrestle with the the gigantic gap between the lie I say that I'm doing fine and the reality where I'm lonely, afraid, and hurting all the time. And so you see a culture that's attempting to self-medicate. Right? How many billion dollar inappropriate internet industry going... How many billion dollar makeup industry trying to preserve your youth instead of embracing the reality that God has made our bodies under a curse right now? How many billions of dollars are spent on sports, athletics, which are good things, but used to self-medicate so I don't have to think about how bad my life hurts? The billions of dollars spent on books that honestly don't ever need to be published. Not even worth the paper that they're printed on. You see, the problem is, as Laodicea has said, we don't need anything. But Jesus says, no, look, I know who you are. And you don't realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't realize you're a mess. You don't realize the extent of your weakness. You don't realize the extent of your brokenness. You don't ex- <laughs> you're acting like you're doing just great, and it doesn't work. As with all of these letters, Jesus provides the remedy for them. I I really appreciate it. Again, you see the mercy of Jesus. Jesus has just told this church that he finds them nauseating. And he doesn't just be like, so I'm going to kill you all. I mean, mean, he could have done that. I'm just going to kill you all. I'm done with you. I'm tired of you. You're being a bad witness. You're being a bad, you know, I'm, I'm done with you. Instead, actually, he gives four separate solutions, and I suspect, actually, these four separate solutions probably are designed to minister to the various temperaments in the church so that different personalities are encouraged and motivated by different things. The first one that he offers, which is intriguing, is he offers the beauty of the gospel to them in verse 18. A church that began well that has become kind of cultural Christianity that it it doesn't cost them anything. I mean, honestly, realistic, that's the problem with this church. Their Christianity doesn't cost them anything. They don't have to give up how they're supposed to feel. They don't have to give up how they're supposed to act. They don't have to give up anything to be this cultural Christian that costs them nothing. And instead, Jesus holds forth the gospel, which cost him everything. 
says verse 18, look, I counsel you, since you don't realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to come to me and I can fix every one of those problems at no cost to you. I give you gold that's refined by fire in the book of Revelation that usually references their faith that has been tested through trial and made it. So a person who's been through difficulty but has survived and made it to the other side. Give you gold refined by fire that you can buy for me so you can be rich. Look, you have all the money in the world. You're miserable. You're lonely. You're confused. You're scared. You're a mess. You want real resources? Come have mine. All it costs you is your life. You give your life to Christ, he gives you everything. All of the resources you can imagine. Here you go. They're all yours. Give you fine white garments so that you can clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness might not be seen. It's intriguing as we watch our current culture today going, how do we solve the problem of shame? We have a culture now that through the internet and through social media and everything, we get to see shame all over. And what's happening is people are going, well, maybe the only solution I have is to be shameless. Well, again, that, that lie only holds for so long. And it begins to gnaw at the back of people's heads. And again, we're watching that incongruity between a culture that says, look, I can do whatever I want to do. There's no shame for me in anything. And the culture that when they try to go to bed at night and they have their head hit the pillow, they're filled with such overwhelming, debilitating shame they can't sleep. Jesus like, I fix shame. <laughs> this is what the gospel is. Just come to me, receive the free offering of forgiveness that I give, and I will clothe you, and I will fix your shame. It goes away. There's nothing to be ashamed of in Christ. In fact, even I'll fix your eyes so you can see clearly. What, a, what an offer for a church. That Jesus has already said, I find you nauseating because you can't see clearly. You don't even see your own problems. And Jesus has come to me and part of the the salvation I give, I fix your eyes. So you can see. For those that don't know the gospel, that's it. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross to freely give all of these good things to his people. They repent, they believe he gives freely. There's no limit to his gift. You can't outgive God, he gives so much. For those in the church of Laodicea that didn't know the gospel, that's what it was. It was given to them. That's his first remedy for them, is so that they would hear it, they would repent, and they would believe. Come hear the good news. The reality of the American church is we are so similar to the church in Laodicea. My goodness, do we not need to hear the gospel? That Jesus died to save sinners, men and women, boys and girls, and gives generously all his good gifts to them. Weirdly enough, for some folks, that's not enough, though. (laughs) I, I don't understand, but weirdly, that's how we work, right? Someone's like, that's a pretty good deal. Well, that's the best deal, but okay, I still won't go for it. And verse 19, the the transition between 18 and 19 is actually quite staggering. Because 18, he gives them this free offer of anything. He will clothe their shame. He will give them wealth beyond all measure. And I don't mean actual physical material wealth. I mean all of the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. 
And then in verse 19, he changes to the next category of person to say, look, some of you do not learn the easy way. Some of you do not learn simply by listening. Some of you, you you don't just hear the gospel and that's enough. For those that do learn that way, that's called reproof, where you hear God's law and you go, ooh, I need to change. That's called learning the easy way. I personally think it's the coward's way and it's the way I like to learn because I'm a coward. (laughs) Because the next thing that Jesus offers is the second solution is for those that are his people that refuse to learn the easy way is that he loves them so very much he will not let them continue like that forever. To those whom I love, I love how he explains that. Look, these are the people I love. This is not punitive. This is not him being rage angry and just, you know, let me you know, get you and get you and get you. And to those whom I love, I reprove. That's the, you know, give the verbal command. You need to change. And I discipline. So he gives verbal warnings and he gives divine spankings. And I'm going to be honest with you. His spankings are far more effective and oftentimes far more painful than anything our parents could have thought of. Right? Maybe you didn't grow up at home with a spanking. That's fine. Standing in the corner. Whatever it is. I don't care. Pick your, pick your discipline illustration. Get your feelings hurt. I don't care. Pick, pick whichever one it was. The Lord God here says, though, for, for those his, his people, though, sometimes we don't learn the easy way, and the result is he loves us so much, he will make sure we learn it, even if it is the hard way. Because he loves us so much. He's not going to let us continue forever in the condition that we're in. And I'm going to be honest, this is probably maybe a little bit bigger point for some of us in here. There is the reality that in a church, that in a town like this, we are the really wealthy ones. I mean, you may not feel it. Money's tight, right? You still, I mean, we're the wealthy ones. And we're in a state that's like, yeah, don't give me money because I'm good enough on my own. But the reality is many of us, unfortunately, don't listen to the warning that God has given. And we still have embraced this cultural Christian moment that produces lukewarm Christianity that sours the stomach. Where we're embracing a Christianity that looks more like the world out there than it does the book in here. A Christianity that costs us nothing, that demands nothing from us. A Christianity that is so unbelievably like the world. And I love how Jesus says, look, I love you so much, I will not let you do that forever. I care for you too much to let your Christianity stay like that. If you're my child, I'm going to make sure you work past that. Now, again, I told you I'm a coward. I don't like learning that way. I want to listen and respond quickly. I've been through the spanking process before from God. I do not enjoy it. I don't like to go that way. Now, if we're, again, honestly wrestling with the text, if we're going, okay, he's called me to repent, and I know that I will get discipline if I don't. There's some of us that are in the room that have been burned in the past. There's some of us in the room that we have been hurt before, and some of us have been hurt very deeply. To the point where we don't like to trust anybody. 
We don't like to let anyone in past our armor. We've figured out how to wall up our heart so that nothing gets through anymore. Our heart is safely locked away inside the box. Nothing gets in. And here Jesus is saying, you have to give me your heart. And so we immediately freak out and go, he's demanding an emotional intimacy. He's demanding a vulnerability that I don't give anyone because it means I can get hurt. Some of us in here probably think the last time I did this, that's when they broke me. That's when they gave me the wound that can't seem to heal. That's that's when they betrayed me. I don't let anyone in. And I love in verse 20 how Jesus explains, well, no, that's actually, that's bad math. Because that's how people who are not divine at all behave. (laughs) That's not how the Son of God behaves. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I might possibly be there, I might not. I might have, you know, ring and run. I might have left, you know, a flag, you know, flaming pile of bag of something on the front porch and run. No, what does he say? If you open the door, I will be there. I will. You don't have to worry. You don't have to, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to, to be confused. Is Jesus going to be dependable this time or maybe not? No, he will be there. And he will come into that person. He'll be in their heart and he will fellowship with them and them with him so that he breaks down the loneliness. He breaks down the isolation. He breaks down the distrust. He breaks down the hurt. If they will just ask, he will come in. I find verse 20 to be unbearably tender. That a person who's wrestling with this, I'm not sure this is the type of Christian I want to be. It will demand all of my life. It will demand my heart, my life, my all. And it scares me. And Jesus responds by saying, there's no need to be afraid. I'm reliable. Nobody else is. But I am. All you have to do is ask. And I I like, too, that for those that maybe aren't quite so scared of that side of it, there's oftentimes another category of person that's going, well, I just don't think it's worth it. (laughs) Right? I don't really think it's worth it. This whole, you know, casual Christianity thing's working just fine for me now. I mean, my life seems to be going all right right now. And my immediate question is, is it really? That's a really good lie. Is it really? But I love Jesus is much kinder than I am, with no surprise. But it, what he ends with here in 21 and follows is the promise for those. For those who are going, well, is it worth it? Is it actually worth being this all-consuming kind of Christian? This one whose life is devoted to Christ, I would contend that's the only kind of Christian. But is it worth that? And what does Jesus say? To the one who conquers, the one who does this type of Christianity, the one who, who is fully committed to Christ, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Can you imagine that? I mean, let's think about it. Like, can you imagine if you had visited England and somehow you just had like some weird quirk of, you know, you went to see the changing of the guard there, you know, Buckingham Palace or whatever, and some kind of weird quirk happened and suddenly, you know, a group of the crowd got kind of ushered in and, you know, you got to see royalty there. And the queen was like, hey, it, you, come on, have a seat, man. Come on, you can sit. It's fine. No, I don't, I don't belong there. 
That's your chair. That's the, that's the special chair. That's where royalty sits. I don't belong there. And I love Jesus' implication is what? No, you do. You do belong there because I share my victory with you. That's the heart of the gospel. What he has won for us on the cross, he gives to us. To the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So the way that God the father shares the throne with the son, that's the way the the son shares his throne with us. Yeah, you belong. It's family. You belong to me. You're my family. This is the family throne. Come have a seat. Is it worth it? <laughs> what a question, right? The amazing thing is how badly we answered. Oh, it can't be worth it to be that kind of Christian. I'm like my casual. Really? which takes us back to where we started. A church that's lukewarm, but doesn't know it. That's, I think, the part that scares me the most. A church that doesn't know it. My challenge for us would be a church that's growing, right? having problems finding seats, praise God. Can't get the air conditioning right because the body heat always goofs up the temperature in here. I have no idea what it's going to be next week. Can't figure it out. It might be cold. It might be hot. I have no idea. Are we going to be a church that is comfortable with casual cultural Christianity? That has mistaken the gospel for something between republicanism and libertarianism, somewhere in between there that has mistaken the gospel for a simple cultural moment that says I can be kind of part Christian part of the time and I don't need to worry about anything else because I'm good. I'm all right. And the other part of this is, going back to the opening illustration, you know, the thing with the egg house (laughs) is that if you stay there long enough, You don't smell it anymore. Old factory fatigue, right? It's after you've sat in Starbucks for a long enough time, you can't smell coffee anymore. Your brain has this amazing ability to take our failings and our blind spots and just block them off. Right? Like right now, your eyes can see your nose, but your brain has decided to stop letting you see it. And now suddenly you can see your nose again, can't you? Because you're like, I know it's there. I never cannot see it. Ah, Our brain has this amazing ability to just take the blind spots and to turn them off. May it be that we, as we grow together as a church, as we grow as the people of God, would be, in a righteous way, terrified of those blind spots so that we listen to the reproof and flee to Christ Jesus quickly, early, and often because he promises that if if you do he's waiting that's what this table is going to be in just a moment where Jesus says come to me 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will make you whole. But in order to do that, you have to acknowledge that you're not on your own. May it be that we never forget that our prayer meeting never dies, that our love never wanes. Let's pray. Lord God above, forgive us for our sin. This describes us so much more than we would like to admit. Keep our hearts from being hard. Please, O God, for the sake of your Son, give us love for Christ and belief in his good gospel, even now. For Christ's sake, amen.